Father in heaven, as we do now come before you and open up your word, we recognize that it is your spirit who enlightens and brings to our hearts the application that you would like to see, the change you would like to see in our thinking, in our action. So, Father, we, we invite you to do that. We say to you this morning, yeah, you know where I'm at and you know where you want me to be. So, Father, we, uh, we invite you to move us this morning with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your Bibles on, flip them open to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. A familiar passage, but perhaps uh, we're going to take a different, different tack, a different look at it. Uh, this is from the ESV, these verses, and let me uh, walk through them a little bit more slowly than is typically publicly read. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So often when we read Scripture, if you're familiar with it and it's something you do on a regular basis, you kind of get to a, pa- a verse like that and you're going, okay, this is a connector passage. I want to get to where Jesus starts preaching again or the argument begins again or the, the talking. And we don't think, oh, this is narrative. Moving on, moving on. One of the important things that we need to always keep before us is the Bible doesn't use exaggeration very much. The writers of Scripture didn't employ hyperbole very much. So when it says all, when it says every, it usually means all and every. And you think, well, wait a minute, wait, he healed everybody? Well, keeping it in context, everybody is these people on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, where he was, traveling to those various villages. Yeah, all of them. All of them that brought demon-possessed, afflicted in any way, to Jesus in these days, in that visit, were healed. Every one of them. Which might explain why the crowd grew so quickly and the verses that are going to follow. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? They're healthy. They're doing just fine. They can throw away the medicine. Everybody he was looking at was in the best physical condition they've ever enjoyed since birth or earlier. They were healed. What would cause him to look at them and be moved with compassion? Compassion, that word that means a knot in your gut. What did he see? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. No, they weren't. 
They had, they, Jesus was looking at them, and I think we can easily jump to the conclusion, rightly so, that he was moved because they were physically fine but spiritually dead. They were lost. They were not with a relationship to this Messiah who was right before them. They were following him and the crowd was growing because they wanted to see what's he going to do next. What magic, what miracle was coming now? Let's all go see. And Jesus looked at him and said, they missed it. They've missed the point completely. They are still spiritually lost, eternally headed to a Christless existence. That bothered him. Were they, were they leaderless? No. They had rabbis. They had synagogue leaders. They had people in charge. But we see with this just simple little phrase, Jesus was dismissing them as false teachers, false leaders. Then he turns and he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now again, if you're familiar with Scripture and you read a statement like that, you know, Jesus just described a problem, or, or the author has just described a problem. So what comes next? There you go. Somebody said, the solution to the problem. So here it is. And Jesus says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus was looking at all these lost people in that part of Israel, and he says to his disciples, watch this. I'm going to bring down angels from heaven that are going to put on a pyrotechnic show that will blow these people away and convince them once and for all, I am their Messiah. Well, I, that's what I would have done. Because it would have been cool and fast and seemingly efficient. If he wanted to convince them of who he was, why not do something like that? But he didn't. He said, here's the plan. Guys, you need to pray. To pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into this. Into this harvest field. And if I would have been standing there as one of the disciples, I said, okay, what's plan B? <laughs> well, there wasn't one, was there? There is no plan B. That is the solution to mobilizing missionaries. Very near or very far. Mexico, Albania. The solution from Jesus' own lips is to pray, but not just pray normally. No, there's a qualifier there. Earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. Well, again, we can still jump over this, and I was willing to do so a couple of years ago when a friend of mine was pointing out this passage to me when we were talking about mobilizing men and women into the harvest. He said, have you looked at that in Greek? And I go, well, <laughs> I'd love to say yes. But the answer was no, I certainly had not. So he says, take a look. Here's Matthew 9:38 in Greek. 
And every time I've said, shown this, somebody will say, well, Greek's kind of pretty. <laughs> I, I guarantee you, seminary students did not think Greek was kind of pretty. We were uh, working hard at trying to, to get it. And I've underlined two words there, deethete and ekbale. Why? Because those are not the words Jesus should have used. Those are weird words for what Jesus was saying. They were not the common and expected words. Prosoikomai means to, to make a request to a deity. In other words, pray. Apostolos means send. That's where we get the name for the apostles. They were the sent ones. That's not what we find here. These are different words. Why? What's Jesus after? He says, therefore, deetheta, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Now, pray earnestly might not be intensive enough because this word is not found very many times in the New Testament. But every time it's found, it means something far more intense. Like in Luke 9, and suddenly a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Well, the rest of the context tells us that this father had reached the end of his rope. His son was so plagued by demons that he would throw himself in fire. And he would throw himself in cisterns to burn to death or drown. And this father had pulled his son out of those situations many times, saving his son's life every time. Nobody seemed to be able to help. And then he hears of some traveling rabbi who seems to be able to help people in such tragic situations. But he's far away. And then he hears, no, no, this traveling rabbi, he's coming through our town. Now, if this father had been politically correct, he would have gone up to one of the disciples and said, May I be your master's three o'clock this afternoon? But he didn't do that, and neither would you and neither would I have if I'd been in his shoes. He did what I would have done. Came through the crowd, elbows flying, and threw himself in front of Jesus, and he said that. I beg you. That is deethete. Deomai. That's the word Jesus used in Matthew 9.38. Jesus was saying to you and to me as his disciples, don't just pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. You get on your knees and you beg and you grovel. And the disciples thought, what? Really? Yeah, really. This word is not found very often. It means beg, beseech, implore. Second Corinthians is another example where Paul is using it, and he's saying to the Corinthians, he's explaining how, how Jesus is far superior than any idols, and he is greater than any gods they worshipped before. And finally he says, I beg you, I implore you, be reconciled to God. As intensively as you can request something, that's what this word means. 
Then, ekbalo. What, what's wrong with apostolos? Why not just send? Ekbale means something different. Again, in Mark 7, the Samaritan woman says to him, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. That's what ekbalo means. Cast out. Uproot. Launch. Throw. These are the words Jesus is now using in the context of sending missionaries. The intensity is unexpected. And we don't get it quite as clearly in any of our English translations as we should. It's used again when James is describing what Rahab said. She went up to the spies that were hiding wherever they were hiding in her property because the Jericho security had already been there and said, we know they were here, Rahab. Where are they? And she lied and she said, well, they were here, but they went that away. And Rahab went up to the spies and she said, you know, the police were here. You guys might want to think about leaving. Maybe some tea before you go? <laughs> no, she didn't say that. She said, guys, you got to go and you got to go right now. And she ekbaloed them. And she said, don't go that way, go this way. The intensity, the urgency is what this word carries very clearly. Okay. Jesus very likely jilted his disciples with the very words he used and the level to which he elevated the need for missionaries and the way to mobilize them. Remember, this is it. There's no plan B. If this doesn't work, well, maybe whose fault is it if it doesn't work? Are we praying desperately? Church, are we praying desperately for God to uproot and launch harvest workers? Probably not. At World Venture, we are a mission training, mission sending agency. It's really the local church that sends missions. Agencies like World Venture, we assist, we help you. But our involvement is, of course, profound. And we asked ourselves a couple years ago, are we praying like this? To our embarrassment, maybe better to our shame, the answer was no, we're not. We're not. We reserve that kind of praying when we find out that a child is deathly ill. And Jesus is saying, well, no, this is the type of praying for missions. Gail Chatfield, she's a, she's a writer down here in Southern California. I think she used to work for the San Diego newspaper. A few years ago, she wrote a book, and in her intention was to interview as many living Marines from World War II as she could interview. And 
she set off and, and, and was able to accomplish this task with 80 or 90. And so, uh, I see I clicked too far. <laughs> but in 1943 and 1944, she posed this question. She said teenage boys were in a panic about one thing. That the war would end before they could get into it. Those of us who were born and lived in a different day, like I did, in the 60s, that kind of an attitude is inconceivable. We refused to register for the draft. We burned our draft cards. Guys I knew fled to Canada. But in 1943, the entire country was all in. They were all in. The intensity to win this battle had consumed every sector of the country. Businesses, manufacturing, education. Everybody was pretty well all in. And what she found as she interviewed these Marines is that many of them lied about their age so they could get in. Many of those 16-year-olds and 15-year-olds said, I'm 18, and they signed the recruitment papers so they could head for the front and join in this battle that had to be won. It was noble. It was important. It was the right thing to do. Now, here's, here's the thing maybe she didn't expect to find. It wasn't just Johnny who signed that recruitment paper saying that he was 18 when he was not. Guess who else signed their name to the bottom of that paper? The parents. Mom and dad. What would compel a mother to willingly lie and say that her son was 18 when he was 15 knowing he was going off to war. Well, no price was too high. It was a noble and important cause. No price was too high. No sacrifice was too great. And while those 15 and 16-year-olds didn't want to be left out as they saw their older brothers and their friends going off to war, and they wanted to go, that's understandable. But mom and dad, too. Mom and dad, too, said, we're with you in this. We're willing to let you go do that. This iconic picture taken by the photographer on Iwo Jima uh, was, of course, used uh, immediately uh, as a enhancement to the recruiting effort in the middle of the war. This is the very next picture that photographer took. And I attempted to, to blow it up, but it, it loses clarity quite quickly as you, you try. But in that circle, that young man on the left, if he's 18, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> he's not. And the sobering reality is that everybody you see in that picture three months later was dead.
Here's an illustration. Three years after illegally joining the Marines at the age of what? 14. Jacqueline Lucas snuck onto a ship bound for Iwo Jima, stormed the beach without a rifle, and threw himself on top of two grenades to protect his team. He survived, and he earned the Medal of Honor at the age of 17. It's been called the greatest generation. Incredible. No sacrifice was too great. The cause was too important. Here's a good-looking young guy, and his story's interesting, too. He, he wanted to join the Army Air Corps in 1943. To do that, you had to be 20 years old because you were going to be an officer and you were going to be a pilot. So this guy somehow left his hometown in Iowa, went to Omaha, Nebraska, where he assumed nobody knew him, and he enlisted with the Army Air Corps, lying and saying he was 20. He looked it, so they took him, and they sent him to Yuma, Arizona immediately. And in 90 days, he became a second lieutenant and the pilot of a B-24. And he flew these contraptions, you know, these <laughs> incredible airplanes for 18 months in the battle in the Pacific. I could tell you a lot about this guy because this is my father. My dad was only 18, and he lied and said he was 20. No price was too high. This was important. This needed to be done. Just like World War II came to an end, so will the Great Commission. We're on the clock, brothers and sisters. We are on the clock. I don't care what your eschatology is about when what is going to happen. We all know that someday this phase will end and God will be on to his next thing in his eternal program. And so the Great Commission is on the clock. Wouldn't it be awesome if Christ followers today had the same passion as teenage boys? In 1943? Meaning, no price is too high. No sacrifice is too great. What more noble cause is there than taking the gospel which can take people from death to life? But that's not what I'm finding. My wife and I were minding our own business as church planters in Austria for a long time. When World Venture asked us if we would come back and take this position in mobilization, and I said, no. And Jeff, our president, said, no, wait. I, no, I really want you to think about this. I want you to pray about this. When we took over this role about four years ago, we began to speak in churches just like this, or at college campuses, or in conferences. And we would uh, naturally present the opportunities and the challenge of following Christ and becoming a missionary. And we had people come up to us and say, oh, I would love to go. 
And there was that unspoken but. And I would always ask the question, well, what's the problem? Well, why, why would you not fulfill that interest? And this student said, oh, my parents would kill me. Oh, are your mom and dad not believers? No, my dad's a pastor. I said, what? He said, no, yeah, they, they told me that, hey, if you go missions after we've paid for your education, you're going to pay all that tuition back. And he wasn't kidding. I said, really? They go, oh, yeah. And another girl said the very same thing, and she said, I was told, don't waste my life in missions. I said, who told you that? She said, pretty much everybody at my church. At my church? The number one hindrance that young people are telling us, and my, by us I mean my team of mobilizers at World Venture, is that they are being discouraged to consider missions by their own family and by their own church. Making money and staying home was more to be valued than giving your life to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who don't know it. And that by Christ followers. I'm not sure what to do with this. I want to, I want to run down this path of anger and explode with fury at such a weird new set of priorities that we as Christ followers in America seem to have. And yet I pull myself back thinking, well, Doug, don't be so judgmental. Who are you? And You know, there's a lot of reasons for joining the battle. And these are just some I came up with. Whatever you could come up with would be just as legitimate. But these are just some of the things that cross my mind when I think about this topic of saying, no, don't get involved in missions. What a waste. You won't, get, you won't make any money doing that. Everything you can see is temporary except people. Everything. And one day you'll stand before Jesus face to face. Do you really want the only thing you can thank him for to be your own salvation? Wouldn't it be great to be able to say, Jesus, thank you, but hey, there they are over there. I was so terrified to go over there to my neighbors and my colleagues and tell them about Christ, but they believed. Thank you, Jesus. There they are. And there's those people those missionaries told us about. We prayed, we gave, we went, and we helped plant that church. Look at them all. That's what I want to be able to say when I stand before him. Comparing World War II to today, you know, the fight isn't to determine which type of human government will rule over us. It is between an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. It's, it's that clear. Ultimately, we're on the clock.
We don't know. I wish we could see it. I can see that one, and it's time for me to stop. I wish we could see that eternal clock because wouldn't, wouldn't we go into a panic? How, you, you've never watched a sporting event that is governed by a clock that the last two minutes weren't the most exciting part where all the activity was. Let's just say we're in the last two minutes, okay? Because we might be. What sacrifice would be too great? Is this cause not noble enough? Jesus said, pray earnestly, beg, grovel to the Lord of the harvest. That's our part, isn't it? The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beg, beseech, cry out to the Lord of the harvest to do his part, to cast out, to uproot from wherever these men and women currently are and launch them into his harvest field. Our part is first the praying intensively. And then if God prompts you, if he says, yeah, you, yeah, you, then don't be disobedient to that. It'll be exciting. It'll be fantastic. Scary? Yeah. <laughs> It'll be that too. But worth it. Worth the investment. Now if you know, if you know, no, he wouldn't be sending me personally, well, what might your involvement be besides the praying? Well, it's the sending. It's the sending. Some of us have experienced a 25% increase in our mutual funds, just recently. What are you gonna do with it? God, is so incredibly patient with us. But that clock is ticking. Let's pray.